What's up? I'm Will Fulton from Thrillist with some amazing podcast news. We just launched our very first podcast, Thrillist Best and the Rest. Every week, you can hear me and my amazingly talented colleagues talk about the best of the best in food, drink, travel, and entertainment. From the scariest movie of all time to the best hangover cure ever, listen to Thrillist Best and the Rest on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, you know, basically everywhere and anywhere you can find podcasts. Hi, Brian. Hi, Katie. And hello, listeners. Brian, this week marks one year since Donald Trump's inauguration as president of these United States. Dun, 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 dun. Happy trump anniversary, Katie. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's hard to believe it's only been a year. It, it feels is. longer. It certainly does feel a little longer than a year, and a lot has happened in the past 12 months. To mark the occasion, we sat down with Maggie Haberman, someone who has had a front-row seat for much of the Trump administration. This, by the way, is the first in a series of podcasts we're doing that we're calling Wonder Women. We're going to be interviewing a bunch of female powerhouses in the weeks to come. We thought it was sort of something in the air about uh, girl power right now and about women in general. And Maggie definitely qualifies as a Wonder Woman, Brian. For sure. I mean, she arguably knows Donald Trump more and better than any other reporter covering him. She started writing about him in 2006 for the tabloids here in New York, and through Politico and the New York Times, she's always had Trump in her sights. She's a top White House correspondent for the New York Times, as many of you know, and she appears on CNN regularly as a political analyst. And over the past year, she's really gotten scoop after scoop on the Trump administration and, in fact, was doing some uh, reporting on her phone as we were interviewing her. <laughs> That's right. She was texting almost the entire time. She's known as a huge multitasker. I think the New Yorker described her as a hummingbird effortlessly doing what she needs to do, which is everything at once. So do you remember the story, Katie, about President Trump watching TV in his bathrobe? With yes. the news that Trump told Russian officials he fired FBI Director James Comey because he was, quote, crazy, a real nut job? I certainly do, Brian. Well, Maggie was behind both of those stories. In our conversation, we talked with Maggie about her first job in journalism if anything about the Trump presidency has surprised her and the challenges of covering this White House, both professionally and personally. You were the original really busy woman, so I feel like I'm only sort of following in your path. Well, I think yeah. you, you have me beat. You've been called a Trump whisperer, a West Wing beat colossus, and also maybe— the greatest political reporter working today. Mazel on that, Maggie. Of course, the president calls you something different altogether. Yes. Uh, on occasion, a purveyor of fake news at the failing New York Times. One year in, how has Donald Trump been similar to or different from your expectations uh, the day he was sworn in? Not a single thing that has happened has surprised me. Seriously? Literally not a single thing that has happened. The only thing that, that surprised me— um, after I just said not a single thing, I was the only quasi single thing is, um, and thank you for all the very kind words, but um, uh, at least half of them are not true. Um, <laughs> uh, was that he fired Comey because I thought if he was going to do it, he would have done it on the first day. Um, but uh, this has played out, if not in the precise ways in which I would have imagined, um, along the same contours and along the same lines. Um, he is who he is. He has not changed. I mean, I think one of the one of the conversations that I find sort of head scratching right now is 
this idea that, um, which I think is promulgated primarily by Michael Wolff's book, that there's some kind of a deterioration. He's the same person who I was interviewing six years ago. Uh, if people wanted to believe during the campaign that there was a strategy, that's fine, but there wasn't a strategy. He did things because it felt good to him or because he liked it or because it was fun. He, you know, his uh, Axios had a story that he's now not getting into the to the West Wing until 11 o'clock in the morning. That's about in keeping with what he did at Trump Tower. So I was going to ask back. you, Maggie, did he run his company? Trump Enterprises or whatever it's called. Trump Organization. <laughs> Trumporg.com. Organization he, may be generous did, for what did, it was. Well, did, no, he run no, it, no. did he run it the same way that he's running the yes. White House? Because it makes you wonder, how was he ever able to be moderately successful, if so? So I think the thing that people forget about him is that, A, he began his business with um, a hefty loan from his father. So this self-made thing is not quite true. Um he was in real estate. He was never seen as one of the more successful uh, developers around. He had four bankruptcies, not personal bankruptcies, but his businesses had had problems. Um, and then he went after the bankruptcies. He went into the licensing business, and he went into reality television. Um, his business was essentially a mom-and-pop shop. It was not a F- Fortune 500 company. It was not anything close to that. And he ran it by constantly making people play for his affections. And he, despite, you know, sort of constantly picking fights, for interpersonal confrontation, he really tries to avoid it. Um, You know, for instance, when his campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski, was fired in 2016, it was Don Jr. and Trump's lawyer, Michael Cohen, who did it. It was not Trump himself. And Trump, in fact, wanted Corey to know what a great guy he still thought he was. So, yeah, this all is exactly who he was before. So he thrives in chaos? He creates chaos, and then he responds to the chaos he creates. It's all a cyclical, feedback, a cyclical feedback loop that, you know, we're all on with him now. And his approval rating is in the 30s. And he seems to have polarized the country more than any president I can really recall. But you know him really well at this point. What do you think are the biggest misconceptions about him among both his supporters and his detractors? That's an excellent question. I mean, I think that um, I think the most common misperception, no matter what side of the aisle you're on in terms of him, is that there's a strategy at play that he's doing that he has some some guidance, master thought, plan, some master plan. And then the second, um, and this is really, I think, um, been interesting for Republicans and Democrats to deal with, is that he's got an ideology. There is no ideology. He's got handful of id-like impulses um, that have always animated him, but he is perfectly comfortable being inconsistent on policy. He is perfectly comfortable taking two conflicting positions. Consistency is not a hobgoblin that gets to him particularly. Uh, I think those are the main misconceptions about him. I also think that the, the, I mean, one that I think is really hard for people to grasp, again, whether you like him or don't like him, but really for people who don't like him, is that the storminess of his personality, which clearly is pronounced and frequent, is not incessant. It's sort of rhythmic. It's weather. It comes in, and then a storm blows out. It comes in, and then it blows out. And we wrote about this, Glenn Thrush and Peter Baker and I did in December, in a piece about how he functions as president. And what can be very jarring for people who didn't know him for a long time is that he can scream at you. And then be making small talk with you a few minutes later because he's vented. He's gotten it out of his system, and it doesn't occur to him how you might be receiving it, and he doesn't really care. The only thing that is predictable about him is that he is unpredictable, and his reactions can be irrational. 
So you've known Donald Trump a long time because— He would tell you I hardly know him. (laughs) Well, the facts suggest otherwise. But you were both a big part of the New York tabloid world, you as a reporter. He was a much bigger part of it. Well, you you, you wrote about him him. in the New York Post and Daily News for many years. Um, And you come from a media family. Your your dad is a Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times reporter. Your mom's a big PR person. Um, so let's just go back a little bit um, before we continue talking about Trump today. Obsessively, which is all anyone, <laughs> so anyone can do, does. Maggie. Yeah. God, you must get so tired of it. Thank you so much for doing <laughs> it with us. You must be like, ah! So let's just take a little interlude and talk about Maggie rather yes, than Yes, let's Trump. talk about you. Okay. So you said you never wanted to be a reporter. How did that happen? Uh, I couldn't get a job working in a magazine out of college uh, where I had studied fiction writing. And uh, child child psychology. And uh, both turned out to be pretty relevant uh, to your job today. <laughs> I, don't, I don't deal in fiction. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but you do deal with children. I have three children. Um, I, uh, anyway, now I, some would argue four. Mm, anyway. Um, anyway. I, I couldn't get a job, and so uh, I got hired as a clerk at the New York Post, which was not a glamorous job, but it was really like fetching coffee, fetching faxes. But I loved the way the newsroom was. I loved the rhythm of it. I loved the place. And what they would do, I think they still do it there, is they would um, they would send reporter uh, copy kids out, that's what we were called, copy kids, um, out on assignment, you know, go to a fire or go stick out a hospital, go whatever. Um the height was getting assigned a day. So, you know, you're the Tuesday copy kid who goes out and goes on an assignment. And I got myself in the rotation, and I really loved it. Uh, and that was that was it. But it was not what I planned for. What was it about reporting that really kind of floated your boat? Did, um, have you seen the movie The Paper? Mm-hmm. The Michael yes. Keaton movie? I mean, that was the New York Post in the 90s. It was... It was interesting. It was colorful. It was the adrenaline rush of a scoop of doing it well. There's something about being in a newsroom that I think is so fun. I agree. It's just fun. It is fun. And, I mean, the the New York Post was the most pure fun job I ever had. Um, And uh, and that New York Post doesn't exist anymore. That New York Post has not existed in quite some time. What's uh, happened in the New York Post? There were editor changes and just sort of um, it's just a different place now. Um, but but did I, you always feel comfortable with, like, you know, headless body found in topless bar and stuff? I didn't have a problem with it. I mean, I was also a bartender, so, like, I, I might be the wrong the wrong target audience for that. But it wasn't um, a topless bar. It was not. A, it was not, <laughs> right. It, it wasn't. Well, but so, I mean, again, so, like, what's Donald Trump's favorite New York Post headline? It was the one uh, supposedly quoting Marla Maples saying, best sex I ever had. Oh, right? he sure it loved was. that front Which page. Which he called in, right? No, he didn't call it He in. didn't call no, it No, what happened was, so Steve Cuso, who is— um, does real estate coverage and uh, I think some business, either some bi- business or page six coverage for the for the Post, uh, wrote a book called It's Alive, and it was all about how the Post almost died um, until Murdoch bought it back uh, in '93. And in the book, he talks about how the reporter Bill Hoffman, who now works for Chris Ruddy at Newsmax, um, and Bill Hoffman sat across from me for years because I was a dictationist, and that was the way the newsroom was laid out. But Bill got a friend of Marla Maples on the phone, and he said, you know, I bet the sex was pretty good, right? And she, the woman was like, yeah. And he's like, best she ever had, right? And the woman's like, I guess. And that's how that headline came to be. So, oh, so, so, so I was going to say, right such great so, setting. I feel so, so much better about my, the New York Post my, now. My, I, I, hey, I love the New York Post. You're not going to hear me say a bad word about it. But um, uh, at least not right here. But um, <laughs> but uh, but that's the world that Trump comes from too, right? Feels true. Is mostly true. I like the way that reads. And so 
And the first time, in fact, you quoted Donald Trump in a piece was in the New York Post. He was talking up Hillary Clinton for president in 2006. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. He once was a Democrat. Um, and, you know, in, in he, what, he would, what he started arguing as his explanation for why he was such a donor to Democrats for a long time was that he— uh, lived in New York, which is heavily Democratic, and so you had to give, but that's that's not the real the real main reason. Um, he was one of the only people who welcomed Bill Clinton to society after the White House tenure ended, right? Um, I think invited him to join his clubs and, and so forth. Because some clubs wouldn't accept him because this was right after this the was right after this was, this was right after Monica Lewinsky. Uh, and so— uh, they were quite chummy. They were quite chummy, and and Trump really likes proximity to power, and he likes feeling like somebody owes him a favor. I mean, those are always the two things. And so he believed that Bill Clinton owed him something, which is part of why he got so angry when the Clintons were criticizing him. I know in 2011 you reported seriously on his presidential ambitions. I did. But you and then I felt to very break silly. the story that he was launching a campaign in 2015. Well, I mean, I would argue that— um, that might not have held up as the best call, but it was certainly defensible at the time because in 2011, we did pay a lot of attention to him. He did dominate, you know, the air and he sucked up all the oxygen the way that he always does. And then he didn't run. And he announced that he wasn't running in the most cynical way possible during sweeps week of The Apprentice after running the most racially cynical early platform we had ever seen where he was effectively calling the first black president illegitimate based on nothing other than based on an internet rumor that Andrew Breitbart, who, who created the website Breitbart, denounced Trump for in 2011. He thought birtherism was disgusting. And it is amazing the degree to which Trump mainstreamed it. In fact, he is really the, the granddaddy of the birther movement, isn't he? I remember seeing him talking about it on yep. The View and yep. spreading that around. And, and, and how did that t- take such a hold on the public's imagination because it, it's crazy. It was funny. It started out as, um, it was, it was a fringe issue. It was a fringe issue that most conservatives wouldn't touch for a very long time. And then he started talking about it. He talked about it on Fox. He talked about it, what it where, you know, wherever. And he was making things up. You know, I have these investigators and they can't, you know, believe what they're finding. Um, you know, people who worked with him at the time said that there was no such thing. Um, and... It was so raw and strange and so norms-breaking. I hate to use the word that we have or a phrase that we have used a lot, and it's gotten quite a workout in the last year and a half. But it was— uh, It was effective. It was impossible to to look away, basically. Well, it was impossible to not cover well, it. Well, I think to me, though, you guys, that is classic Donald Trump. Yes. You say something enough. Yes. You know, whether it's crooked Hillary totally. or whatever. Totally agree. That is, a, that is a page from his playbook. You repeat it. It's Correct. like a mantra. Repetition is and a huge part of what he does. Suddenly it starts permeating yep. your consciousness in a way that you don't even understand. But what does it say about— No, it's the, absolutely true. What does it say about the base of the Republican Party that— Birtherism is really what bonded Trump to those people. Says that it is an aging, older, largely white base um, that had seen. You know, this is not the first time that we've seen ever uh, in history, and certainly in, in U.S. history, of a small group of people, much more on the far right than on the far left, uh, but who had a certain what was described by Hofstadter as the paranoid style in American politics. Right. Others are taking what you have, and Obama represented that. And Trump, um, my colleague Jonathan Martin, we were both at Politico at the time, put this really well in a piece in 2011 that what the base saw Trump as 
was a neon stand-in for somebody who would take the fight to Obama because the base didn't feel the party was fighting this president hard enough, which clearly is has proven otherwise uh, in history, but that was the sentiment at the time. Can so, we take a says. little? Can we take a little turn just for a second momentarily to talk about Roy Cohn? <laughs> because honestly, I think that people don't understand just how deeply influenced he was by Roy Cohn. I agree. Can you explain quickly, Maggie, who Roy Cohn was, the nature of his relationship with Trump, and what he taught? The Donald, as we used to call him. Sure. So, uh, I mean, Roy Cohen was the legendary Joe McCarthy fixer and lawyer, uh, you know, dirt peddler on his opponents. The whole playbook was slime the opposition, attack, attack, attack. Donald Trump and Roger Stone, Trump's longest serving political advisor on and off, both shared Cohen as a, as a mentor. Michael Cruz at Politico had a great piece on Trump and Cohn during the campaign where he unearthed this gem of a quote from Trump talking about Roy Cohn, which was, Trump said, he brutalized, but he brutalized for you. And I think that that so succinctly sums up both what what Trump believes people should be doing for him. But if you think about the thing that we've always talked about with the Clintons, especially Hillary Clinton, is they want people defending them, right? We always talked about this in covering the Clintons. Trump is that times a gazillion. You are supposed to go out and absorb whole bullets, give up your family for him. The The professions of loyalty are um, and the need for it are, are, are huge. Um, and Cohn embodied that, and Cohn taught him that. And then at the end of Cohn's life, when Cohn, Cohn who was a uh, in-the-closet gay man who had AIDS, when he was dying of AIDS, according to Cohn's assistant, Trump dropped him. Um, and she believes he dropped him because of the AIDS panic uh, in the 1980s. Trump does not like talking about Roy Cohn particularly. I think he spoke about him a little bit to my colleagues, Jonathan Mahler and uh, Matt Flagenheimer, during the campaign, but it's not one of his favorite topics. But he has really, you know, even though he distanced himself. He's personified the tactics and the style. I mean, very much so. And it's, uh, you know, a friend of Trump's once said to uh, me that, you know, you've got, Trump's got two people on either shoulder and one is his father, Fred Trump, and the other is Roy Cohn. And, and one of them is whispering in his ear at all times. Yeah, a friend of mine said if he could go back in time, he'd kill baby Hitler and tell Fred Trump to be a little nicer to his kid. I think it I think it would have required a little more than just being a little nicer. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Anyway, back to Maggie. Um, you joined the New York Times in 2015, and there's been some criticism of you um, that even amid all of these scoops, one colleague of yours, unnamed of course, is quoted in Vanity Fair saying you've brought a tabloid, Twitter-fied sensibility to the Times. How do you react when you hear something like that? Um that it's not true, that I'm not the first person to get hired from Politico to the Times. That, um, And I'm not even sure that that was meant as an insult, frankly. But um, I think that the direction that the Times has taken on politics is not attributable to any one person. I think that we have, and, and on the White House coverage. Uh, and in terms of Trump, we are covering a tabloid president. So if you cover him as a conventional president, you're actually going to mislead your readers into thinking that he is a conventional president. He's not. There are only so many ways to do something when it is in the written form versus, say, a TV interview or a live rally and a live television interview. Um, I just don't agree with that assessment. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more from the first in our Wonder Women series, Maggie Haberman of The New York Times.
This season, Crate and Barrel wants you to play matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match with your gifts, that is. Good design becomes great design when it's in the hands of the right person. No more random gifts. These are matches just waiting to be made. The host you know with the most... There's a platter designed for them. Someone else on your list into entertaining? We've got glasses for that. There's even a set of spoons perfectly crafted for your next dinner date. Match them up with the right person and you've done something truly gifted. These gifts were designed with you and yours in mind. So find the ones that were made for each other. Crate and Barrel. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout and now back to our conversation with maggie haberman Maggie, talk about some of the challenges in covering a president like this. I mean, it's A, it never ends. It's literally, it's like I feel like I did when I had newborns. It's like a long day. You know, when you have a newborn and you sleep for two hours and you're up for three and then you— um, you don't have time to take a shower. You feel so nasty. You, you have nas- that, like, nasty green velour robe it, on. Correct. And, and like, <laughs> right. And, like, you know, and so it's like instead of the baby, it's your laptop. Right? Yeah. Um, I just cannot get away from that thing. Uh, everybody, I think one of the big challenges, and again, I thought that I had seen the zenith of this with the Clintons, but I really hadn't. Everybody has a really strong opinion about what you're doing. Everyone has a really strong opinion, at you with the reporter. Everyone has a really strong opinion about how you're doing your job. People who do not know anything about journalism are suddenly journalism experts. Um, people who do not understand that it is not a reporter's job to hold uh, an impeachment trial. Um cannot do the things that they would like them to do in an interview. Um, I think that people are, I think that people, so I think a couple of things. I think that there has been this psychic experience, collective psychic experience about this presidency. Um, and I think that that has been for most people. It has not been for his most ardent supporters who do not really believe that he can do that much wrong. Although I do think that if you went and and interviewed a lot of them at this point, there are things they're going to be disappointed with. Whether they would vote against him, I think is a different issue. But um, for other people, we've never really seen anything like this. We've never seen I was thinking about something you said at the very beginning about how he's divided the country. I mean, the country was pretty divided before he came in. What he has done that is different is he's done zero to reach out to people who weren't with him already. And that we've never seen before. We have never seen somebody who has come in and said, the rest of you, you know what, the haters, the losers, 
That is what he does. Um, well, Ron Brownstein and, wrote, I thought this was very savvy, mm-hmm. that the tax plan was not about redistribution <laughs> so much as I retribution. This. I saw that. No, so it was, it it was, was about was, punishing the blue states. It was a weaponized tax bill in a way that I don't think that, as a, as a friend of mine put it, and I, I, I don't think that we have seen uh, anything, and a friend of mine who's a Republican, I don't think that we have seen anything like that in quite some time. Um, but Maggie, it goes beyond not reaching out to people who weren't supporting him. No, it's attacking. It's, it's attacking. But, but, but even more than that, I think he, you know, what did you use? The norm? Norm shattering. Norm shattering. Uh, and the the lack of decorum right. and any kind of attempt to be civil and to have manners. No, he does. He's not interested in. He is not interested in niceties. He is not interested in in norms as we have always defined them. And he's um, everything is an attack if he doesn't like you. If you do anything that crosses, him, he will he will call you a great person in one breath and then the next breath call you the worst person in the world, which is, he does to reporters as well, which is both personally disorienting and then I think collectively disorienting. Um, I I think that initially people wanted to believe that reporters were heroes. People who didn't like Trump thought reporters were heroes um, because people sort of want a hero at the moment. And then reporters are (laughs) reporters. They have a job. And now I think people have gotten frustrated that reporters can't do more, but the more that they want done can be done by Congress. It's not the job of journalists to prosecute the president. And what everybody knows about this presidency and the Russia investigation and so forth is all from reporters. I think reporters have done a really good job collectively covering this president. Um, Under very difficult circumstances. I agree with that. It's sort of your... We're grateful, honestly. Um, you know, I'm not reporting on the president on a daily basis, but for everyone who does, it to say it's disorienting must be a massive yeah, understatement. It is. It's just it's a difficult um, it's a difficult thing to do. And where do you draw the line between news analysis and commentary? So, for instance, we just interviewed Joe and Mika mm-hmm. on our last podcast, and their criticism now is that. Reporters, they think, have gone too far in the anti-Trump direction, that they're over their skis. Like who? Well, he didn't give specific examples. I think they said even they were a little over their skis, you know, sort of media writ large. And I think that included themselves. I mean, I was going to say they've called the president mentally unstable. I don't understand who they think has gone further than that. Well, I think they don't view themselves as objective reporters, and I think the evidence probably bears that out. But— when you think about the sort of the, quote, mainstream media, mm-hmm. New York Times, Washington Post, et cetera, do you think that the balance has been struck about right? Or do you think there's too much kind of reporters masquerading as columnists on Twitter? Um, I think Twitter is a huge problem in general. It certainly is a problem for me and a challenge for me. Um, you tweet 140 uh, times a day, according a, to the Columbia Journalism Review. Yeah, is think, that not true? I think I did then. I think I've stopped a little bit. But um, it's a, it's toxic. It's toxic. It's terrible. I and also it does, feel like it feeds the echo chamber because correct. I feel like reporters tweet for other reporters to be cute and clever for other reporters. Right. And they're not really serving the public. They're serving their industry. I wonder if Twitter would still be in business were it not for Donald Trump and reporters. It would be, but I don't think that it would be anywhere near as relevant as it is now. And well, I don't think it would be as much of a cesspool as no, it is now. It's, a, it's just, it's just, it's toxic. And so, um, and people assume the worst out of everything they're reading. Um, I do think Twitter is a danger for reporters, myself included. Um, I do not exempt myself in that. But um, have you thought about not tweeting? Yeah, and then I tweet. So I've thought about it, and then I tweet. Do you think more about what you tweet now? Yes, I do. 
And mm-hmm. ha- what about a policy at the New York Times? There was a, wasn't there a new policy at the there's, Washington there's Post the, or the, the New no, York the, Times? The Times, the Times has the Times has um, social media guidelines. And so these social media guidelines mm-hmm. that have been instituted by the Times are relatively new. They're, yeah, it's in the last couple of months. I'm quoted in the in the guidelines. I yeah, mean, just sort of like I mean, I think that the problem is is like the number the number of tweets that I compose and then delete are a lot, either because it will end up. I think people will misread it or because it's just what I want to say can't be said in that many characters, even 280, um, or because it's just not worth it or because it doesn't always need to be said right then. The mistake that I made recently was defending myself on some criticism and like – don't go down it's that just rabbit not, hole. It's just a bet, right? It's just it's a, it's it's you're through the looking glass once you do that. It's a bad idea. So I didn't. Uh, so I've stopped. But um, but I do think that Twitter allows for a tone that straight news reporting does not, and I think that's I think that's dangerous. But I think the tone of Trump coverage generally is over the top. That I do agree with them on. But I also think that um, I think they've contributed to it. So well, you brought. I'm int- oh, sorry, Brian. Go, go ahead. ahead. Are, are you going to do? The I was going to bad. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, you brought you brought up. <laughs> this is fun. I know you brought, <laughs> you brought up you brought up Maggie Trump's instability, uh, or at least the fact that Irrational, Joe and Mika, his irrationality. Joe and Mika, as you mentioned, called Donald Trump right. mentally unstable and frequently. Pete, Pete Wenner, a longtime Republican strategist who worked for the last three Republican presidents, mm-hmm. said. Mr. Trump's recent Twitter storm slash interviews are more evidence we've been watching an American president psychologically, emotionally, and cognitively decompose. That sounds very I, well, un- I don't, unflattering. I mean, right. I mean, it's it's unflattering. It's also diagnosing from the couch. I think that my issue with this is that these same people, and, and, I, and I, I respect Pete Winter a lot, so I don't want to sound like I'm not, um, but I— They've been saying that he was cognitively declining since the campaign. So you tell me where the bottom is and, and what we're hitting. I've been interviewing this man since 2011 on a pretty consistent basis, uh, year to year. Uh, he's the same person I've been talking to this whole time. And so you so don't see any evidence of a decline? I see evidence of somebody who is in an enormously stressful situation in a job that I do not think he loves. And probably and brings out the worst in him. I think that certain qualities get exacerbated. But do you think, think the president is mentally fit to govern? I don't know what that means. I don't know. In other words, like I hear the words coming out of your mouth and I understand the sentence, but I'm not a psychiatrist and I do not think that reporters diagnosing people is a good idea. You know his state of mind. Let me just try to phrase this in a different way. And I know you don't want to reach a sort of an opinion. I'm not going to reach that. Yeah, I'm not going to answer that question. What I am going to say is that I have I have covered his obsessiveness. I have covered in detail the types of things that he bores in on in times of stress, his perseveration over slights. Um, his self-absorption, and on and on. So I think that if people can't decide for themselves, I mean, this is the thing that I find a little jarring, is the degree to which everybody needs to have some kind of, you know, USDA stamp, unfit. Like, look at what's in front of you and decide what you think, Um, but none of us is a psychiatrist. And I don't think that we have been putting a gloss, any of us, on his moods or how he deals with things. But doesn't the 25th Amendment kind of require some kind of stamp? Well, that's in Congress again, and that's the that's What's the cabinet, and that's, the, ca- and that's the cabinet. cabinet. I was going to yeah. say, and that's the cabinet, but that's not the rep- that's not reporters. Tell us about a day in the life of Donald Trump, Maggie, because you spend a lot of time following his every move. Does he eat as many uh, <sighs> Big Macs and fish of fi- filet o fish as my mom used to call them? <laughs> as, fish. <laughs> as, and drink as many diet cokes as we've been told. He definitely and, definitely drinks as many diet cokes as you've been How told. How many? A dozen. 
it's a, it it's a dozen a day. He that is a lot. just yeah. insane, Maggie. Yeah. He's not a healthy eater, and he never has been. Tell us about his eating habits, his drinking habits, his sleeping habits, and his TV habits. He doesn't sleep very much. He watches anywhere between four and uh, eight to ten hours of TV a day, and the TV habits have been increasing, I'm told, by several white White House staff, especially since he got back from Mar-a-Lago on the holiday break. Uh, he drinks about a dozen Diet Cokes a day. He loves to eat McDonald's, Kentucky Fried Chicken, um, Burger King. Um, these are his uh, favorite meals. What's his go-to uh, McDonald's? <laughs> that I'm not sure the answer of. There's one that he sent Keith, Keith Schiller to when Keith was still in the White no, House. No, I his mean his aid. go-to McDonald's um, item. Oh, his item? God, I think it was a Big Mac, but I don't remember, honestly. But um, it's the report that he has so, so I'm guessing it was fattening, though. I'm just going to go with that. <laughs> but the report It's not the grilled chicken it's sandwich. Not the, right, it's, not the, it's not the healthy items. But the report that he, he doesn't get into the Oval Office until 11 in the morning that's and true. he leaves. That's true. That, and that's basically how he conducted himself at Trump Tower. Like, he wouldn't roll in until about 10 or 11. Now, was this always the case, or is this more recent? It's gotten, it's gotten more like that in the last decade or so. So he watches TV in his bathroom, basically? I, he watches TV. Um, remember, he doesn't own a bathrobe. Didn't you read that? And was but like, you reported they have, that he was in a bathrobe. I, I did. Um, that is true. And and he was. Um, what do you think of Michael Wolff's book? I'm curious because they say he doesn't read. He is semi-literate. He doesn't prepare. He knows almost nothing about policy or politics. He's extremely moody, thin-skinned. Um, does this sound right? Well, it's what I've been reporting for two years. Yeah, it sounds right. I just couldn't help but wonder how he got that much access. Um, Steve Bannon walked him in, and um, some folks in the comm shop decided to play some level of ball with him, not fully, but enough. Do you um, believe he talked to Donald Trump for three hours? I think an aggregate on three, of three hours, sure. I, three hours is not a lot of time. So, Well, I think an hour and a half of that was the interview he did in Beverly Hills Correct. for The Hollywood Reporter. Correct. I do not think that they spent much time together since Trump's been in the White House, no. But he'd, he'd written some pretty pro-Trump columns oh, he spent, for a variety he spent, of— he spent years criticizing all of the Trump-covering media, and he spent the first year of the White House uh, in, and the transition saying that all of our coverage, that things were a mess, was wrong, um, that we were all too negative about Trump. Um, uh, I think he described my beat as the aberrant presidency of Donald Trump um, in a very derisive way. So I don't understand how he makes that— comport with his book, uh, if he well, considers that a negative, because his entire book is that there is something very well, wrong what, here. What, what his happened? narrative what, is what? that Donald Trump changed. And well, what he you're saying change. is he didn't change. No, he didn't That's change. What changed is that Wolf, Michael Wolf wanted to get access to Trump. And so— He did so by criticizing, and he did so by criticizing the mainstream media. Which he would not be the first person to do. And so lots of reporters over the years have done that. Have you read the book? Mm-hmm. What do you think of it? I think it needed a copy editor. I think that some of it is very good. I think some of it is fantastical. Um, but I think conceptually, it's it's pretty right. Let's talk about and John. It af- and it affirms what the rest of us terrible reporters have been writing for a year and a half. So, Have you talked to, to Michael Wolf about it? We're not friends. Ah. <laughs> Let's talk about John Kelly. I mean, if he ever felt like reaching out to me for comment, he'd be more than welcome to. John Kelly was supposedly going to bring a sense of discipline well, John Kelly has made the staff feel less scared of one another, which was really happening with Steve Bannon. Um, people felt scared of Bannon. Uh, and the, the Bannon and Jared Ivanka fight was horrible um, internally for a lot of other staffers. And he has made staff members feel less frightened of the president himself in the sense that the president's a screamer and he can be difficult. Um, but he's done nothing to control the president. Morale is terrible in the West Wing. It's it, 
as bad or worse than it was when Reince was there, previous uh, as the chief of staff. Um, so Kelly has made a decision that you're not going to change what a 71-year-old man does, and he's not. And that 71-year-old man gets in big public fights with his attorney general, his right. secretary of state, to name a couple. Do you think that's strange? You know, you, 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 do you think that's aberrant and unusual, or do you think that that's normally what presidents do? I think it's I'm a little going, strange I'm just going unusual. with the metrics laid before us by, by recent books. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. What what is the state of those relationships with the senior cabinet members today? That's a great question. Um, it depends on who it is. Mike Pompeo, he has a great relationship with, and he has this whole time, which is interesting because they didn't really have a relationship prior to the White House. Um, but he sees him every morning. For sees the him every morning. Pompeo has figured out how to brief Trump. He has sort of figured out how to speak Trump. Um, Tillerson, Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, has not figured out how to speak Trump. Um, although Tillerson had been expected to leave this month, is now telling people he doesn't want to leave. So we will see what happens. Um, what do you think is the, the the conflict between those two guys? Just a very different style? Totally. I mean, I just think that—and I think that Tillerson is just not used to being somebody's underlying, honestly. I and mean, he's a buttoned-up corporate executive. Totally. Totally, in, like to the to it, with every fiber of his being, right? And, and when so, you're like, CEO of Exxon Mobil, that's basically like being a head of state, exactly, right? That's actually that's exactly right. And he's used to being sort of honored and feted in a certain way. Um, so I think that's been one obstacle. What Jeff, up with what? What up with Mike Pence? Well, <laughs> be more specific. <laughs> um, well, every time you see him, he's smiling graciously, you know, sort of nodding in agreement. Don't you love how Maggie Maggie's been on her phone? She's I'm like sorry. reporting a story right now. I, Are you I reporting am, a story? Yeah. Can I'm you sorry. tell us? Well, we had we had had a tip that um, Mitt Romney had cancer at one point, and it turns out he had, um, and it's it, prostate cancer, and uh, we just hadn't been able to confirm it, but somebody else just broke it. Oh, so really? That's what I'm just dealing with right now. Yeah. But is is he fine? He's okay. Yeah. And he's still going to run. Um, and he's still going to run. All right. Well, this is very exciting to hear, like, breaking news. Who broke it? Uh, it was, I think, CNN. Um, anyway, that sorry. probably fake news then. I, yeah. Anyway. They're my employers, too. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. What are the—there's the, a little sarcasm there. I know. So go on. Okay. Mike Pence. Mike I mean, Pence. I, I think that, look— the thing that everybody forgets about Pence is that he was a conservative radio host before he was a congressman, and then he then he was the governor of Indiana, and he struggled politically as the governor of Indiana. He wasn't going to get reelected. He was not going to get correct, and so most likely not. And so um, he, um, I don't know what the long game is here. I think basically he actually took a short hop. Right? I mean, it was either not get reelected for governor or roll the dice and see what happens here. Um, He's very deferential to the president. Very, very, very deferential to the president. You can see that yes. every time he appears with him. Right. And he has he has found a way to handle Trump pretty effectively. Trump really solicits his opinion, likes him, seeks him out. Um, Do you think he'd be a good president? I think that you never really know what somebody actually is in, like in the job until they get in there, although I didn't know what Donald Trump would be like before he, he got into it. A less um, chaotic president? He would be less chaotic. He would be a very conventional Republican, conservative Republican president. Very conventional. Very, very. It would be like um, they were. <laughs> I was covering City Hall, and uh, Giuliani was the mayor uh, in his second term. And I remember we were complaining about something that the press office had done to us because you know Giuliani was sort of prototypical for Trump, except that Giuliani is like incredibly well read and um, is is has has actual sort of policy thoughts and and beliefs and core beliefs. Um, but very vindictive. But he's got it. But there, there's a lot of similarities there in their personalities. There's a reason they're friends. Um, but uh, 
I remember we were all griping in the press van one day on our way to an event about uh, something that the press office had done. And one of the uh, radio reporters who had been there long, she's long since passed away, but who had been there many, many decades, said, you should be really grateful he does this many events. You know, when it was back in um, in the A-beam days, the mayor would be unavailable for weeks. And, like, that's a little bit what Pence would be like. I don't know the last time Pence did a live TV interview. Like, I mean, he is really, really, really careful and so different stylistically than Trump. So— Two of the personalities that obviously get enormous attention are Jared and Ivanka. You right. know, they're young, they're rich, they're glamorous. That I think a lot of people resent them. They think, oh, well, there's got to be something kind of corrupt or um, something a little bit— um, Malevolent? Yeah. Well, about malevolent, either, and corrupt, malevolent and corrupt are not the same thing. But no, yeah. no. Uh, about either or both of them. Can you, what, Sneaky? What are, the, what are the facts that we know about— their roles in the administration, how they operate day to day. Look, I mean, I think part of the problem early on was that um, they, uh, when 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 Reince Priebus was made chief of staff, the immediate thing that I said to a source who told me was, it sort of doesn't matter who has the title because Jared will be acting as the chief of staff anyway. It's only with Kelly that Jared has not been able to do that. Um, you know, they're they're um, they're both difficult. Um, to read, they are um, uh, they're very different people. I mean, she really is a lot like her father. Um, Jared is very sort of chill and flat and does speaks as little as possible. Um, and how is she like her father? She has um, a very similar set of grievances. She has a very similar uh, sense that people are being unfair to her. Um, um, she's a lot like him. Do you think she sees what's happening with her father and is distressed? In what sense? I mean, distressed at both how he is being perceived and how he is governing. I don't think she's happy with how he's being perceived, and I certainly know there are aspects of, of his governance that she's not happy with. I mean, there are policy issues that they've disagreed on, many of them. The but Paris I just mean board. his style, not policy issues. I mean, issues. she has always tried to refine his style at the same time— this is one there, one area of reporting in Michael Wolff's book that I think was really dated um, and I think was based primarily from people who knew her when she was younger and before she was being groomed to take over the company. Um, she has gone from being sort of a somewhat resentful daughter to really being, in many ways, the spitting image of him. Not, not, I mean, not physically, obviously, but um, she... Uh, but she's him without a lot of the flash and style. She be- she does believe that he's got a genius. She believes that there are things that he can intuit that other people can't. Um, and she's very riveted by it. Um, but this is not the life that they wanted. This is not—and none of this is what they thought was going to happen. Um, like him, she believed that they would walk in and be treated sort of deferentially. Um, and uh, she's been a little surprised at how D.C. actually is. As you look ahead, what are you most— concerned about in this year two. Oh God. Um I'd North like a little Korea? I'd like yeah, I'd like a little less nuclear fun talk on Twitter. I think that that's a little alarming. Um, um yeah, a North Korea is of great concern to the administration and and um I think for good reason. Um that's my that's my biggest concern. When he tweets that his button, his red button is bigger, I mean, you can't make this stuff up, can you, Maggie? Paging um, Dr. Freud. It's yeah. well, no comment. Um, I don't. Um, I don't think any of it is productive or conducive to um, actual 
policy or conversations. I just I think it's a problem. What do you know about the Mueller investigation, the state of it, where it's headed, who it's ensnaring right now? We know very little about that. I mean, really, I don't want to speak to something that we really can't see into. What the George Papadopoulos indictment taught all of us is how little we actually know about what Mueller has. But given that he has gotten a bunch of people to plead guilty, you should assume there's going to be more. Maggie, on a personal level, how, you know, I people are criticized because they don't ask men the same question, and I would argue that I would ask men the same question, but given the demanding nature of covering this White House, mm-hmm. how are you able to unplug? How are you able to be with your kids and to do the things that you need to do um, when you're not at work? Um. With difficulty. I mean, I don't have it. I don't. None of this has been easy. It's been really hard on my kids. Um, that How is old are they now? Twelve, eight, and seven. Oh, they're that's, little. Yeah, they're really little. That's what I would get. That's what I would undo over the last year. Is how hard this has been on them. Is your husband a saint? Yes. Um, ask anyone who knows us. Um, he is. A, and he's also a journalist a saint, yeah. for the Daily News. He's a, the politics editor. Yeah. So, but he also has long hours because of that job. It's just it's been hard on my kids, um, and it's been hard. And 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 Trump's election has seeped into see at the time seeped into schools in a way that very few other campaigns have. So I just my kids have just been um, surrounded by all of this for a while. Do you feel that they're more anxious and you're more anxious as a result of what's going on in the world? And I mean, I think that they're just being on duty all the time. Like this lends itself to being anxious. But what? But beyond that, though. Beyond the hours, the, the sturm and drang that is that is I, I, constant. I think it is a. I think it is a an, an unnerving time in the world, and I don't think that we are any of us is impervious to it. Let me, you just do the best you can. Let me ask about someone else who who was or is close to you, and that's Glenn Thrush. Um, you guys were set to write a book together. He got into some trouble apparently because of sexual misbehavior. Can you comment at all about sort of? What you know about those problems and how it's affected your reporting and your relationship? I mean, he's been uh, a friend for a really long time. Uh, This is obviously pretty painful for a lot of people, um, including um, these women who uh, felt uh, mistreated or who were scared or uh, who had encounters with him that they were unhappy with and that they did not feel good about. Um, But uh, he also... Uh, has said he has a substance abuse problem, and I'm glad he's getting help for that. And beyond that, I don't really want to talk about it. Let's talk about where you go from here. So we're finishing up this podcast. It's approaching 3 o'clock. You have an appointment, so we're going to get you out of the studio. Thank you. But what is the rest (laughs) of your day going to be like, Maggie? I have a meeting with um, somebody in the paper, and then I have to do a TV hit, and then I have to meet a source, and then I have to go home. And then tomorrow I go to Washington. And how do how do you kind of? I, I'm curious because I'm so impressed with your reporting and so much reporting that's been done these days. I mean, I know this White House leaks a lot, but is it difficult? <laughs> is it difficult to find a source? that really trusts you and you can really trust. Yeah, I mean, it's di- look. Well, look, it's difficult because. Trump and the people around Trump have historically told a lot more untruths than any other campaign that I have dealt with. Um, So we developed a system in the campaign, Ashley Parker, Alex Burns, and I did, of sort of how we would arrive at a common base soup stock of what what, what was true based on a number of people overlapping in the same account. And then anything that did not comport with that would get shaved off. And we we still use that. Um, The difficulty is just that 
there is so much stuff that is untrue floating around, and then the true stuff is, t- is called false. So, And everyone has an agenda. And everyone has an agenda, correct. And it's usually about killing someone else. So it's usually not policy. It's usually harming some other person. On that note, Maggie, that have a nice note. day. <laughs> happy Monday. <laughs> Thanks for having me, you guys. Thank this you a lot so of much, Maggie. Much. Thanks to our wonderful production team, as always. A tip of our hat to producer Gianna Palmer, our engineer Jared O'Connell, assistant producer Nora Ritchie. Nora, have I ever told you I really like the name Nora? I really like the name Nora, too. I do. It reminds me of a doll's house. And my mom's name was Eleanor. And Ellie is named Eleanor, but I call her Ellie, not Nora, but I could have called her Nora. But anyway, I didn't, and I like your name. Thanks also to Emily Bina of Katie Couric Media, my assistant Beth Demaz, and Allison Bresnick, who hits a bullseye day in and day out on social media. Mark Phillips wrote our theme music. Katie Couric and I are the show's executive producers. And please, if you can, drop us a line at comments at couricpodcast.com with guest ideas, feedback, questions, or anything that's on your mind. You can also find me on social media under Katie Couric. And you can follow me on Twitter at GoldsmithB. We'll be back next week with the next installment of our Wonder Women series. So stay tuned for that, everyone. Meanwhile, thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye, like John McLaughlin would say. Bye-bye! Dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. <laughs> This is Julie Rieger, author of The Ghost Photographer and co-host of Insider's Guide to the Other Side. And I'm Brenda Viam. I may not have written a book, but I'm in Julie's book. And you are the most gifted psychic on the planet. <laughs> Come on. Listen to Insider's Guide to the Other Side on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.